Matthew. And so you may want to place a bookmark there in Luke, the fifth chapter. And that is where we will begin and spend most of our time. It also may be helpful for you to go ahead and find Zechariah chapter 7. That is one of those books we don't look at a whole lot. And so if you're like me, you have to kind of mentally go through where exactly is that. It's right towards the end of the Old Testament, next to the last book, Zechariah chapter 7. We're going to read a couple of passages from that text in a few moments as well. Well, it is just about time to go back to school. And for many, that is an opportunity to get new school clothes, and so the Hale children have gone through that whole process, which I have told them, before I get you new clothes, you've got to clear out the old ones. And so I'm not sure if that's as painful of a process at your house as it is at our house, but it's quite, quite an ordeal. And I can't say much because... I'm pretty bad about that as well. I have a closet that is full of clothes, but yet so oftentimes when I walk into that closet, I look and I say, I have nothing to wear. And I, again, I don't know if that applies to you or not, but I have a sneaking suspicion that it may. And when I say I can't find anything to wear, what I mean by that is the one or two outfits that I like to wear are not available. So I can't find what I want to wear. There is no doubt that we are creatures of habit. We find things with which we are comfortable and we settle into those things. That's true with our clothes, it's true with our vehicles, it's true with our jobs, but it can also be true as it relates to our service to God. In Luke the fifth chapter, the Pharisees question Jesus because he and his disciples are doing things that fall outside of the social and religious norms of the day. In other words, Jesus and his disciples are doing things which fall outside of the bounds of the comfort zone of the Pharisees. Beginning in Luke chapter 5 and verse 33, it says, They said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, it will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old 
is good. Now before we dig in too deep, you need to understand that at this point, there is a connection between the Pharisees and the disciples of John. Of course, here we're speaking of John the Baptist. You can read about this in Matthew chapter 9 as well as in Mark chapter 2. If you go to Matthew's account in the ninth chapter, you're going to see the disciples of John asking Jesus about fasting, but in asking, they align themselves with the Pharisees. Mark's account shows John's disciples with the Pharisees as they jointly question Jesus. Luke's account simply says, they asked. But a connection is made with the disciples of John. Perhaps the disciples of John and the Pharisees had many differences, but on this issue, they were united. The reason why I say that is because on the surface level, it would seem that there is a contradiction between the behavior of Jesus and the behavior of John the Baptist. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, the text says in verse 4 that John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. And so one of the things which John the Baptist was known for was a very austere life, a very plain life. And yet, we find that Jesus was one who was called a glutton and a drunkard, Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 verse 33, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon, the Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now I say all of that to say this. Jesus does not address John's behavior or his own behavior in this text in Luke chapter 5. What Jesus does respond with is an assertion that their traditions were not enough to have a covenant relationship with God. So what I want to do in our lesson this morning is I want to talk about the question they ask. And then I want to talk about this business of new wineskins, how Jesus responds. And we really need to do some studying on both or we will miss the point of both. First of all, again, they question Jesus about fasting. Their question relates to fasting. Now most often when we come to a text like this, we say, well that doesn't apply and we just move on because we don't fast. I think we may need to pump the brakes on that. Let's talk about fasting for a moment or two. Sometimes we get in our heads that they were just fasting all the time under the old law. That's a misconception. In fact, when you go to the book of Leviticus, you're going to find that fasting under the law of Moses was only required on the Day of Atonement. 
In fact, you can read in Acts chapter 27 and in verse 9 they say, the fast was already over. And so there was a widespread understanding that this fast was the fast. And fasting was never designed to be a religious ritual. In other words, something you do just because that's what you always do. But instead, fasting was supposed to be an appeal to God. Now, as you study through the Old Testament, what you're going to find is that fasting was not always done for pure purposes. As is often the case, God gives you something which is intended to be a blessing and mankind takes that and twists it around and messes it up. We talked a little about that in our Bible class this morning. And that's what we see with regard to fasting. If you will, go to the book of Zechariah right there towards the end of your Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 7, Zechariah chapter 7 and verse 3 The text there says, "...saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain or fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years?" Now you can just read that question and it is very evident that they're going to fast because that's what they've always done. And it doesn't seem to me from reading this passage that there's a whole lot else to it other than, well, it's time to fast. And that's what we've done all these years, and so let's let's do it again. Merely their tradition. Go down to verse 5. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted, and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years... Was it for me that you fasted? I like the way the New King James translates this. God asks, did you really fast for me? For me? And of course, that's a rhetorical question. The answer to that is no. You fasted because it was your tradition. It was your custom. God is questioning those motives. Turn over, if you will, to the book of Isaiah. Sometimes people fasted to be seen or noticed by others. Jesus, of course, makes reference to that in the Sermon on the Mount when He talks about how they disfigure their faces. They make it known that they are fasting so people will look at them and say, Oh, how pious. Oh, how righteous. Oh, how good they are. Isaiah 58, verse 3, verses 3 and 4. Why have we fasted and you do not see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. God says, you can fast from now till kingdom come, but if those are your motives, if the heart behind it is unrighteous, I will not accept it. It is vain worship. 
Fasting that pleased God was accompanied with a care for others. Verse 7 of Isaiah 58, Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Skip down to verse 10. If you pour out yourself for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And so God is telling them what you're doing is wrong. Here's how to do it right. And we see this continue into the New Testament. The Jewish leaders had taken fasting and they had turned it into a religious Ritual. In his commentary on the book of Mark, L.A. Stouffer writes that fasting, according to the tradition of the Pharisees, was practiced twice weekly. Later on when Jesus tells about the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, you remember what the Pharisees said? I fast twice a week. Well, that would have been their custom. But of course... Their fasting was manufactured in order to impress others. They made it obvious that they were fasting. Jesus makes reference to that again in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 and in verse 16, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. I say to you truly, they have received their reward. They bragged about their fasting. That Pharisee in the parable wasn't the only one who was saying, Look at me! I fast twice a week. And in addition to that, when we come to Luke chapter 5, it seems that they are forcing that practice on others. We fast twice a week. The disciples of John fast. The Pharisees fast. Jesus, why do your people not fast? Your people need to fast to be like us. Well, it is true that Jesus did give instructions to His disciples about fasting, which indicates that fasting is something He expected them to. To do, But his assertion was that true disciples would fast out of a desire to grow closer to God. When you examine fasting in the scripture, you see that it is typically dictated not by tradition, but by circumstance. You see people who fast when they are dealing with a period of sickness. You see people who fast when someone has died as a part of the grieving and mourning process. You see people fast in times of war or battle. You see someone fast because they are convicted of their sin and they are mourning that sin. You see the people in the book of Jonah in Nineveh who fast because they realize 
They are lost sinners. And they say, maybe, just maybe, if we will fast in sackcloth and ash, the God of heaven will extend His mercy. And of course, if you know the story of Jonah, you know that he does. A couple of passages in the book of Acts which connect us to fasting in the New Testament church. In the New Testament church, fasting was done in connection or in conjunction with an important event or a decision that needed to be made. And so you'll find that the people would fast and they would take that time which would normally be devoted to eating or some type of pleasure and they spent that time in prayer or in study or in meditation as they were thinking about what needed to happen. Acts chapter 13, beginning of verse 1, it says, There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. That's not our point of emphasis. The point is in verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord... And fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Alright, so Barnabas and Saul are about to go out on their missionary journey. And what do the brethren do? Before they send them off, they pray. We get that. We understand that but they also spend time fasting. Go to chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, verse 23. You find that Paul is coming back to many of the places he had gone on that first missionary journey. He is encouraging the congregations. He's strengthening the congregations. And one of the things they're doing is appointing elders at that point. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 23 it says, When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so again, we're putting these men in positions of leadership. That's a pretty important decision. That's going to be accompanied with prayer. We understand that. We get that but also fasting. And as we go back to our text, Jesus makes it clear in Luke chapter 5 that there is an appropriate time to fast. Jesus asks in verse 34, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. They will fast in those days. Now, it is not hard to figure out that when Jesus talks about the bridegroom in this text, He's talking about Himself. And when He talks about the bridegroom being taken or leaving, He is speaking about his departure. There would come a time when he would leave the disciples. And he tells them about that in John chapter 16 as he says, I'm going to go, but the Comforter will come and he will guide you into all truth. Speaking, of course, about the Holy Spirit. 
And so Jesus says, I'm here now. There's no reason to fast. But when I leave, that is when they will fast. I like what one writer has said. Fasting becomes appropriate when fellowship is interrupted. I think that's a good way of putting it. In other words, fasting is done because you feel a sense of separation from God and you desire to get closer to Him, just like we pray out of a desire to get closer to God. We study our Bibles out of a desire to get closer to God. Fasting as it is done in the Scripture is done out of a motivation to get closer to God. You don't fast because you already think you're good. And that seems to be very opposite from why the Pharisees fasted. They fasted because they wanted other people to see how great they were. They fasted because they believed they were the truly righteous ones. They fasted because they thought they had it all together. Jesus says, actually, the opposite is true. You fast when you realize something is missing in your life. You need to be closer to God. And just like you would pray or just like you would study from God's Word, you would fast out of a desire to be closer to God. You don't fast and then not fill that vacuum with anything. Typically you would fast and fill that vacuum with prayer. That's why so oftentimes you see fasting and prayer connected together. But ultimately, what I want you to take away from this is that God knows why someone would fast. He knows the heart. As is true with any other religious practice. Okay, so we've answered their question. We've talked about fasting. In the few minutes that we have left, I want you to understand something. This is not just about fasting. Jesus is making a point about that, but He's making a deeper point because their question reveals a deeper problem. And that's a problem you're going to see throughout the Gospel account the value they placed on their man-made traditions. Now the statement was made in the class this morning, there's nothing that's man-made. And in a very real sense, that is true. But in this sense, when we're talking about the traditions of men, those are man-made. Those come from the hearts and minds of people. And so to respond to that, Jesus continues the discourse with two parables. He talks about taking a patch from a new garment and putting it on an old garment. And he says if you do that, you need to understand there's a couple problems with that. First of all, the new garment is ruined because you've taken this new piece and you've put an old piece on it. But then also, the old is made worse because the pieces don't match. 
Matthew and Mark's account describe the new cloth shrinking, which tears the garment worse. And so the idea is that the, the fabrics are not compatible. Regardless of the specifics of the, of the illustration, the point is the same. You attempt to patch one of the garments, and in the end what you've done is you've not fixed one, you've ruined two. I think we get that. We understand that. The new and the old are incompatible. The new is tough, the old is weak. The new is solid, the old is worn thin. Jesus' way is not designed to be combined with any other religion or any other tradition. That's the takeaway. That's what Jesus is teaching. You can't take the way of Jesus and somehow mesh it with any other religion or any other tradition. Okay? In today's world, the application is very, very simple. You cannot take Christianity and merge it with the ways of the world. It doesn't work. There are a lot of people in the religious world who attempt to do that. Oh yeah, you can be a Christian, but you can go out and you can do the things the world does. That's fine. We're good with that. As long as you show up every once in a while and put some money in the plate. We're good. Well, that's modern day American Christianity, but that's not real Christianity. That's not the religion of Jesus. So Jesus' way is not designed to be combined with any other religion or tradition. And then he talks about this this business of of, of wineskins. Now that one's a little harder for us to understand. But in ancient times, people took animal skins and made them into bags that would hold liquid. Now initially, these containers were elastic. But what happened over time is they grew brittle. And once they grew brittle, they would easily crack or burst. And then, in addition to that, old wineskins, which had already been used, contained what they called dregs. That's sediment from old wine which would sit in the bottom of the container. That would absorb oxygen and it would quicken the fermentation process. I hope you understand that. There's pieces of that I get. And some of it I'm like, "Eh, okay, it just kind of goes over my head. But again, the takeaway is this. Jesus is saying that He is bringing a new spiritual message. And that has to be received by a new spiritual container. He's not talking about a wineskin. He's talking about the hearts of people. One writer says, Disciples of Jesus must be free from the dregs of falsehood and human tradition in order to receive and preserve the pure fruit of the gospel vine. It's the same illustration that Paul uses when he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. There we're talking about bread. Maybe we get that one better than wine, but it's the same point. The gospel is a new way and it can't be mixed 
with old traditions. Now, some interpret this to be speaking of the old law, new law. And it is true that those are not compatible. Galatians 3 tells us that the purpose of the old law was to bring us to Christ. Hebrews 10, the old law was only a shadow of the things to come. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 as well as Hebrews chapter 8 tell us that Christ has abolished the old law and established a better covenant. Romans chapter 7 says if you try to follow both, that's really spiritual adultery. And so some would interpret this, and, and I'm not necessarily going to disagree, some would interpret this as Jesus saying that the new covenant is not compatible with the old law, the law of Moses. And so the new wine is Jesus and the old wine skins, that's the law of Moses. That's plausible. And that may be true to an extent. But I do believe Jesus is saying something more than that. Let me explain to you why. I take this to, to mean that Jesus is speaking of their man-made traditions. Within the context, that's why we spent so much time about talking about fasting. What's he talking about? Is he talking about the old law? Well, not really. He's talking about their beliefs about fasting. He wasn't teaching against what the old law had to say about fasting. He was showing them how they had taken the old law and they had twisted it with their man-made traditions. Their beliefs about fasting did not come from the old law itself. Rather, he is dealing with what they had attempted to turn the old law into. And so I don't believe that this is a direct contradiction between the law of Moses and the law of Christ. I believe that Jesus is making a contradiction between His law and the traditions of men. What does the Bible teach about tradition? Danker defines tradition as instruction that has been handed down. And we need to understand that the expression may be used to describe something that is equivalent to a divine command. Let me give you an example of this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, Paul says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Paul there is not speaking when he uses the word tradition of his opinions. No, he's saying, I brought you the Word of God as I teach in every church, he says in another place. And so it is possible that the word tradition may be speaking of a divine command. But it is also true that sometimes the word tradition is talking about something which is not a command, but which people have tried to turn into a command. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 3, He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? And so in that text, 
God's command is not on the same plane as the tradition. Notice what the book of Colossians says. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 and in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so in that passage, is tradition equivalent to God's law? No. In fact, Paul is saying it is the opposite of God's law. He goes on to speak about some of those traditions specifically at the end of chapter 2 there in the book of Colossians. And so I think it's important for us to understand that when we're talking about Jesus... He never appealed to the traditions of the elders. He would either appeal to the authority of the written word, the law of Moses, or he would appeal to his own authority as the Son of God. Tradition is not intrinsically evil. It operates within the realm of expediency. What is best? What is most efficient? And human judgment. But it is condemned when it is thrust into the role of law, when we take our tradition and make them equivalent to God's law and we bind them as such. That's exactly what the Pharisees had done with the subject of fasting. So again, we can make the point about fasting. Jesus is making a deeper point. And I think we need to take that deeper point as well. The question for us is, do we try to take our traditions and make them God's law? We need to be careful about that for a couple of reasons. First of all, it makes us pharisaical. That's a big fancy word, but basically it makes us like the Pharisees. That's thrown around a lot in the religious world. We're just being a Pharisee. Trying to follow the Word of God does not make us a Pharisee. Trying to follow our own man-made traditions does. And there's a difference. Traditions are not inherently wrong. They may be wise. They may be expedient. But we've got to be very, very careful with them. And sometimes what you'll find is people argue for staying the same simply for the sake of staying the same. I think a way to test ourselves in this is what is our attitude when someone practices a tradition that's different from ours? Not something that is clearly spoken about in the Scripture, but it's just a different practice or tradition. I'll give you a couple of examples of that here in just a moment. But what happens, I'll tell you what happens. We think, well, they're wrong. And that's what the Pharisees do in this text. And I think the disciples of John are right there with them. Another example of this mentality is found in the Pharisees when they had turned their interpretation into law. Matthew 12 and verse 2, it says that the Pharisees saw the disciples plucking the heads of grain on the Sabbath and they said, Look, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But in reality, it was lawful. It was just that was not their interpretation. Sometimes you'll hear that today. Well, that's just your interpretation. 
Well, if it is just our interpretation, that doesn't make it right. doesn't necessarily make it wrong, but it doesn't make it right. Sometimes we don't necessarily view them as wrong, but we'll still look down on them. I'll give you an example of this. Have you ever been someplace, maybe you're visiting or just traveling through, and it comes time to, it comes time to do the giving. And when they pass the plates, they don't have a prayer. You ever been in a place where they do that? When you read in the Scriptures... The Scriptures show that Jesus blessed the bread and He blessed the fruit of the vine. But it doesn't show when Jesus passed the plates there. Oh, wait a minute. He didn't pass the plates right then, did He? There's not a passage which explicitly says you've got to pray before you give. We do that. I'm fine with that. I'm not saying we need to cancel that. But sometimes you'll go a place and they don't have that. Are they wrong and we're right? Or what about this? What about those churches that have gone, just gone off the deep end and they have canceled Sunday night church and they have two services in the morning? What about those people? Oh, oh, well, wait! We are those people! But I'm going to tell you, in some places they look at that and they say, well, y'all are, you, you, don't, you can't do that. <laughs> oh, well, what, what does the Bible say about church at six on Sunday? Oh, it doesn't. It doesn't. But if that's your tradition, and you see, so we've got to be real careful. And maybe, maybe we say, well, you're not wrong, but, but, but that's, you shouldn't do that. And I've had that conversation with brethren. Well, they shouldn't do that. Why? Well, and what that comes down to is that's not what they're comfortable with. It's kind of like that one change of clothes in the closet. That's what I'm comfortable with. That's what I'm wearing. We've got to be careful with that. So we don't need to be like the Pharisees. Our way is right. Any other way is wrong. If we're talking about Bible things, that is the standard. But if we're talking about my things, that's not the standard. And then... Also, we need to be careful with this because it can make us stagnant. Because what happens is we become comfortable. The Pharisees were unwilling to come to Jesus. One reason for that is because they were very satisfied with the wine they had. The New American Standard translates verse 39. It says, No one after drinking old wine wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. And that's how the Pharisees viewed themselves. We're, we're good. We don't need to change. We don't need to grow. We don't need to adapt. We are fine. The danger with that is that man-made traditions lead to vain and hypocritical service because we think we're fine. And so we don't examine ourselves. We don't examine our hearts. We don't examine our practices. We just do what we've always done. And we're like those people in the Old Testament. It's time to fast. Why are you fasting? Well, because that's, that's what we do. And there's no heart put into it. 
And so if we're not careful, what we do no longer becomes about pursuing God. Instead, it becomes a ritual that we do with little thought at all. And maybe we even do it out of impure motives. Why would you ever change if you're comfortable? If you're in your comfort zone, there's no room for growth. The reason why this matters is because Jesus is about radical change. Jesus is not just taking what you already do and then just putting a little patch on it. That's not what Jesus is about. He is a brand new garment, new way of thinking, new way of acting, new way of living. The Pharisees were inflexible. They were brittle like those old wineskins because over the years they had accumulated non-biblical traditions, the dregs that were sitting down in the bottom. And they viewed those things as equal to God's law. They were comfortable with their way and so they didn't want to release it. They were comfortable with their way which made them incapable of receiving Jesus' way. What does this have to do with us? We may read about men like Alexander Campbell or Barton W. Stone. And we may appreciate the contributions they have made to the restoration of the New Testament church. But at the end of the day, my brethren and friends, we do not follow something because Alexander Campbell said that's the way to do it. Because Campbell is not our authoritative guide. There may be preachers who have been here in the past or in other places that we have great respect for. But at the end of the day, those men are not our authoritative guide. We do not do what we do simply because brother so-and-so said it. That doesn't make it right. If that's our standard, we are no different from any denomination in this community. Because you will hear them say, well, Brother Bill said it and he would never lead us wrong. At the end of the day, Brother Bill is not the standard. Brother Alex is not the standard. Brother Randy is not the standard. Jerry is not the standard. God's Word is the standard. And so what we have to do, even though we may feel comfortable with our traditions... They are not our authoritative guide. We've got to do like the Bereans and study the Scriptures daily so that we can discern between truth and error, but also so we can discern between what is actual law and what's our tradition. We need to be like those new wineskins that are described in the text. So I thank you for your good attention. We never close a service without offering God's invitation. It is His invitation to give, not mine, not this church's. He shows us what to do in His Word. As we think about how you become a Christian, we talked about that last Sunday morning. We witnessed someone do that very thing. But at the end of the day, we teach that not because it's just what we've always taught. We teach that because when we open up the Word of God, and we read from the pages of Scripture, it shows us how to become a Christian. And it shows us how to live as a Christian. And so if we can help you to that end, won't you come? Why don't we stand?
I'm always singing this song. 